Welcome to Razor Branding Podcast with Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Hi, welcome to Razor Branding Podcast. This is a special Thanksgiving week edition because we're talking about food. And what better food on your Thanksgiving table than some awesome parish rice? So joining me today is Michael Fruget. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jackie. Thanks. Hi, thanks for being here. So, Michael, um, I would love it if you don't mind, because I know the backstory and I think it's awesome. But if you wouldn't mind sharing your story from farmer to Acadian prairie rice to now parish rice, kind of walk me through how you got from where you were to where you are. So it's been many years in the making. We uh, our industry ever since 2010 has kind of lost the quality in our rice. We used to be known around the world for our quality. We kind of set the standard for quality. And in 2010, things, uh, things went downhill. And <clears throat> the main reason is we started growing varieties and our hybrids looking for yield, trying to produce the most pounds we possibly could, because that's what we get paid on. Once, uh, <clears throat> once our quality went downhill, I always had in my mind, what can I do to change this or to help change this? I can't do it alone by any means. Um, so I always wanted to put my own rice in a package, but I never could figure out how to do it uh, without competing against the guys that I'm selling my rice to. Right. So uh, in 2018, a really good friend of mine in Southern Illinois, started growing a specialty variety from the LSU Ag Center that has higher protein in it. Uh, he put it in his own package and started selling in and around St. Louis, Chicago, uh, Northern Illinois, and started having some success. So he and I had multiple conversations about what I should do to put my own rice in a package. And finally, one day we came up with the idea that you know what, let's use the same variety. It's a niche variety. It's got some really good characteristics to it. Let's put it in my own package, have my own brand. He would concentrate on the northern part of the United States and I would concentrate on the southern part. And uh, that's when I started Prairie Acadian. My wife and I came up with the brand name uh, because we, we farm and operate in Eunice, Louisiana, which is known as the Cajun Prairie. And we wanted to tie it all together to our local community and uh, came up with Prairie Acadian. By the time we started, uh, Blake and I, who's the, the farmer in Southern Illinois, were told by some dietitians that because of the fact that our carb to protein ratio is different in our rice, we should have a lower glycemic index score, which is one of the biggest negatives in white rice or rice period is the fact that it does not score well on the glycemic index. Uh, it's highly recommended for anyone that has diabetes or, or is pre-diabetic to stay away from rice. Um, so I felt like this was a big deal. So we started an adventure trying to get our rice scored on the glycemic index. We signed a deal with Pennington Biomedical Research Center in Baton Rouge, which is owned by LSU in late February of 2020. And then COVID hit in March of, of 2020 and shut everything down. So we did not have any communications with Pennington 
We did not know when they were going to be back up operating to be able to run the study for us. Uh, so we started looking elsewhere. We found a lab in Toronto, Canada called Equus Clinical Research, who spends a large, large portion of their time scoring foods on a glycemic index. We contacted them, asked if they could do it and would be willing to do it. And they said, absolutely. So they typed up a proposal, sent it to us. We signed it, sent them rice, and they had it done very quickly. We received the results back uh, in late October of 2020 and were way better than we ever dreamed of. We were hoping to see a 10, 15 point difference on the glycemic index, and we saw much more than that. Typically, white rice scores about a 70 on the glycemic index out of 100, uh, which is in the high category. Ours came back as a 41 and fell in the low category. Once we uh, got this information back, we really, we knew we really had to do a good job of marketing and getting this information out there and using it to the, to our advantage. So that's when I uh, got in contact with Brand Russo. Actually, they got in contact with me, but right. it ended up all working out. And after a three month market research project, the recommendation was made to capture the higher protein and the lower glycemic index score and change to parish rice in order to do that. And uh, that's how we come up with parish rice. I love it. So I appreciate um, the value of a low glycemic score, especially for somebody with diabetes or pre-diabetes who's wanting to watch their carb intake. But I would imagine on the flip side of that for athletes, uh, we've got a whole story to tell there. Talk to me about how great this is for athletes who are trying to carb load. <clears throat> One of the first visits I ever made when I started this was LSU. Uh, went to the campus. I made contact with the executive chef of the entire campus who actually works for the compass group. Uh, it's called Shortwell's Higher Education. Uh, he and I had a long visit, told him the story uh, about the higher protein at the time, I didn't know the glycemic score. And he really loved the idea and said, you know, the number one person I needed to be in contact with was the executive chef for the athletic department at, uh, at LSU. LSU built a state-of-the-art uh, training center for all their athletes. Uh, it's called the Football Ops Building. And they have just one of the most fascinating cafeterias I've ever seen. Uh, he lined up a meeting to meet the executive chef there, Michael Johnson. We sat down uh, right before Mardi Gras in 2020, and he bought into it immediately. He brought the information to their dietitians. They were very excited about it. Uh, started selling to them right away, and that was strictly because of the high protein. Then once we got the glycemic score back, I sent them that information, and our sales increased even more. So they started cooking it uh, even more for their athletes. And right now I'm delivering them about 10 bag, 10, 25 pound bags every 10 days. Wow. That's a lot of rice. <laughs> it is. But I would imagine it's <laughs> Those athletes eat a lot of food. <laughs> well, exactly. And they're tired of having peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at midnight to try yeah. to get their protein intake for the day. Now they can do it with your lovely rice on some etouffee and they're good to go. That's right. 
So when we think about Thanksgiving, uh, which is this week, obviously, for those of you watching live and for anybody who's listening to the recorded version, uh, we're recording this right before Thanksgiving Day. Talk to me about the rice dishes. What do you see as the most popular rice dish on the table uh, for Thanksgiving usually? And is that geographically change or is it kind of across the country? Uh, it's definitely geographically. You know, that's something if I go back to Blake targeting St. Louis and, and Chicago area. He's selling to a completely different consumer than what I'm selling to. Um, if you look at the per capita consumption for the United States, it's somewhere around 20 pounds per person per year. But when you get onto the Gulf Coast, Southern Louisiana, all of the Gulf Coast, that number goes up exponentially. So we use rice in so many different ways in the South than they do in the North, uh, whether it's gumbo, jambalaya, uh, etouffee, a lot of different ways. Um, I go back and talk about the quality of our rice. And one of the things is uh, the way our rice cooks these days. And that has many reasons that, that we'll maybe get into later. But one of the big things with this variety that I'm growing, it's very diverse. It's very diversified. You could use it uh, in a lot of different dishes, whether it is etouffee or jambalaya and it's going to cook appropriately for that dish um, a lot of your varieties out there if you add too much water it's going to get mushy if you don't put enough water it'll be crunchy uh, this variety is very flexible and if you want something that's a little stickier you could just add more water to it uh, which allows you to be able to use it in whatever dish you're preparing now, one of our local sushi restaurants, I think, realized that to some award-winning success. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what Tsunami's been doing with your rice. <clears throat> so Reed Henderson, uh, he I actually met him when he was at the uh, LSU Athletic Nutrition Center. Uh, he worked there when I first started selling them rice. He and I, uh, he really liked everything about my rice, the way it cooked uh the benefits it brought and when he took the job at tsunamis uh he had me over there and met with their executive chef and visited with them they don't use a whole lot of it just because of you know the fact that they're making more sushi than anything and that's that's a whole nother different variety that they use for that but he entered a competition two weeks ago uh it was a fundraiser for a foundation in Baton Rouge and featured my dish and ended up winning best of show. And he said the biggest highlight was the rice. He said he really feels that that's the whole reason he won uh, was because of the quality of the rice. So I'm thinking if anybody's out there shopping for rice and they want to make some educated decisions, we've got higher protein, check, uh, lower glycemic index, check, and not just better flavor, but award-winning restaurant caliber better flavor. How does anybody buy anything else? Like, it feels to me that that's the answer right there. <clears throat> we're still working to get into places. We're not everywhere right now. Um, we're still growing. The big thing is I've been doing this long enough that people are now coming back and saying that, you know, with the low glycemic score, it really is working. It doesn't affect their blood sugar. They allow to eat rice again to some degree. It's not a fix-all, 
Sure. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say it solves all the problems, uh, but it does allow people to eat some rice, whereas before they tried this, you know, they couldn't eat any. Uh, so we're still working to get into places. Best place to get it right now is on our website, uh, parishrice.com. Uh, we are working with several distributors to get in stores in and around Lafayette area and other places in southern Louisiana. That's awesome. Um, I know that you have a, a great passion for the rice industry. You've grown up on the rice fields. And I, from the moment we've met, we've talked about um, the work you've done to try to elevate your whole industry. Talk to me a little bit about the challenges that you and, and all farmers face in this modern era and, and how you're working through that collectively. It's really difficult um, because of all the regulations that we have, which is, it, it makes it difficult for us, but it's also a good thing uh to some degree because it does allow us to provide the safest food in the world um one of the biggest i guess challenges for us in marketing is people see things on tv uh lawyers advertising to sue for some ag product and when the consumer sees that they automatically think or, or worry that well these farmers are producing unsafe food we go through so many regulatory steps in order to provide the safest food out there. Um, we pride ourselves in that. We have to do so many things. Our margins are so thin and things are so expensive for us to produce a crop that we do the best job we possibly can <clears throat> in conservation, in stewardship, in order to be economically sustainable. Uh, because that's our number one goal is to keep going, to, con to keep producing food for the everyday consumer. Uh, but just the stigma about U.S. agriculture is, is one of our biggest hurdles. And that's one of the things that I ultimately want to achieve with this product is to have or to be able to touch and speak and visit with the everyday consumer to teach them uh, about what we do. I love when people come to the farm and see what we do. And majority of the time, they're just blown away and fascinated at, at how we do things. And other countries don't have the same regulations as U.S. farmers do, right? So how do we balance the low cost, but perhaps also low quality foreign ag products with the more locally grown and heavier regulated. I feel like that's confusing for consumers sometimes, especially those that are price conscious. So it's funny you say that. Um, it's one of our biggest discussions right now as we speak um, over the past few months. We, uh, we've really been talking about that because unfortunately we import entirely too much rice into the United States. <clears throat> we basically import what we grow in the state of Louisiana. Wow. And we're trying to figure out how to combat that and how to uh, educate the consumer on the fact that we have the same products produced most likely in a much safer manner and is way more sustainable than importing into the United States last thing we want to do is have to depend on other countries to feed us. Um, I know I don't want my children to have to depend on that. Um, 
and there's no reason we should because <clears throat> our products are just as good or better than, than anywhere else. Duh, I'm confused and, and maybe I'm wrong, but the way that I've read some of the articles, it sounds like the rules and regulations we put on our farmers to sell, to produce and sell their uh, pro products domestically are not the same rules and regulations that um, farmers have in other countries. And so do is there any sort of a check safe they have to go through to import? Or are you literally competing against people who don't have any of the same rules you have? We are. I mean, we're not on a level playing field. Right. Um, they do have checks, you know, that they have to go through. It's just not the same as us. And, and a lot of the big advantages or, or the things we battle is some of these countries are highly subsidized. And uh, that's all things that are, you know, monitored by the United States uh, with WTO agreements and everything. So there are checks and balances. It just a, a lot of times, it, you know, it takes years to go through those processes in order to maybe slap somebody on the wrist for doing something wrong. Um, so we do, you know, it, it's tough and it's, it's an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing conversation and it's something that, that we really try to pride ourselves on, on producing a good product and hoping that ultimately the consumer will want a, a good sustainable product. Right. Now, when you talk about the variety, um, that, parish rice is and how it's, you know, higher protein, lower glycemic index. Does that make it a GMO? <clears throat> Absolutely not. There is no GMO in rice. Um, it's actually highly frowned upon and, and not allowed in rice. Um, so some countries, um, for example, the EU, the EU has zero standard for GMO in rice. So we in the United States, because of the fact that we do send a little bit of rice to the EU, um, won't allow it in any sort of rice that we grow. Uh, so all the rice in the United States is GMO free. Interesting. I did not know that. Um, how does someone change the makeup of rice? I mean, do you just do you marry it? I mean, like, what do you do? How does that happen? That's <laughs> fascinating to me. So it actually, it's a good analogy. Um, it, it's, it's through the breeding process, um, just crossing different genetics, uh, you know, and it, it takes time, a lot of time. We use, um, I say we, the breeders, public breeders at the LSU Ag Center and, and other places like University of Arkansas, uh, Mississippi State, Texas A&M, they all have public breeders that work for these universities. And <clears throat> they'll use a winter nursery in Puerto Rico, to, which allows them to go, grow two or three generations in one year. Otherwise, it would take seven, eight, ten years to develop a variety. Uh, the winter nursery allows them to speed up that process. Um, also, with some of the new technologies they have now with DNA marker assistance, they can read the DNA of, of a new variety. And if they're breeding for a certain trait, they could 
figure out early on that that trait didn't cross over so they could get rid of that variety uh, without going three or four years into a process and then realizing it's not there. So they'll take tissue samples, run DNA marker on it, and, and be able to uh, eliminate a particular variety earlier in the process. It also allows them to do many, many more crosses uh, to fi find the desired characteristics they're looking for. I think you and I have discussed the fact that I have no green thumb. I can kill fake plants. Um, I am fascinated by the way that plants are bred. Um, I, I did not know it was breeding. Like, that's amazing to me. So it's just, you know, it's pollination. Yeah. Um, and, and they'll take pollen from, from one plant and, and implant it into another plant. And, uh, you know, they, they usually use, you know, certain varieties that have the characteristics that they want. Maybe one is yield and the other one is a disease resistance and they'll cross them. And once they have that, they may even bring in another variety for another characteristic and back cross it to that variety. So it's, it's a long process and these guys do a really, really good job. Um, it fascinates me to sit down and visit with them. Um, I have a really good relationship with Dr. Steve Linscombe, who was the breeder at the Rice Research Station in Crowley uh, for many, many years. And now we have Dr. Adam Famoso, who is phenomenal. He's brought in a lot of new technology in order to speed up the process, like this DNA marker assistance uh, technology that I talked about. And it just fascinates me to sit down with those guys and listen to the process of how they do things and, and how much they do in a given year. Right. Um, Simone asks, when did you discover your passion for high quality rice versus high quantity? And do you ever look at other countries for inspiration on how to do things right or not right? So the, the, the whole quality thing, like I said, really came to light in 2010. Um, once our quality started going down and we started losing market share in other countries, um, we really, really depend on exporting rice in the Southern United States. We have to export 50 or so percent of what we grow. Well, wait, we do I don't mean to interrupt, but so we export and we import. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> so <laughs> we export, we export to countries, um, Central America, Mexico, Mexico is one of our biggest, if not the biggest, um, so we're exporting something that they like. Unfortunately, we're importing a majority of what we import is jasmine, Thai jasmine rice, which is an aromatic rice. We, until the past few years, we did not export nearly as much as we do now. Uh, our exports have really, really grown and, and gotten bigger every year over the past three to five years, I would say. And I think a lot of that has to do with our quality. Uh, people have found that this Thai jasmine cooks well, it cooks consistent every time. And the demand for that has really grown. We do grow jasmine rice in the United States. And that's part of the whole consumer education is just educating people on the fact that we do grow jasmine rice here in the U.S. And it does have good quality and it will cook the same every time because it's a one single variety in a package. 
Interesting. Interesting. So do you feel that there are other countries who are embracing this quality over quantity approach that you've started doing, or are you just that far ahead of everybody else? No, 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 absolutely. So to answer Simone's question, that that's kind of when my passion started was when I started realizing that we were losing market share to places like Uruguay because they were producing a high quality product, uh, that they were using to take our market share in Mexico or to take our market share in other countries. Um, so that's when I started trying to figure out what we could do to change our industry um, to focus more on quality versus quantity. Right. Because I've had the opportunity to go to uh, many other countries and they do focus on quality. Uruguay knows exactly which variety they're growing for which country. And uh, we just don't seem to do a very good job of that here in the United States. Right. Um, are you carrying on a family legacy of farming or are you the first of your people to farm? <clears throat> My dad, uh, he and I actually farm together. He's been farming for, uh, I guess, about 40 years. His father did not farm, but he got started uh, through some of his uncles. He had many uncles that farmed um, and he just kind of became a passion of his was, was to farm himself. He got started in the early eighties and then I came on always wanted to growing up. Uh, it was just very difficult to get into. Things are so expensive. It's really hard to get started. Um, so I moved away in as soon as I finished college, went to work for a rice seed company, moved to Houston. We stayed there for four years, moved back to Eunice in 2009 and planted my first rice crop in 2010, uh, along with my dad. That's awesome. Do you hope that your kids carry on the tradition? <laughs> I, I do. I have three daughters. Uh, hopefully one of them will want to. Um, I think they could bring a lot to the table you know, maybe not necessarily just physical farm work, but I think, you know, having my daughters promote what we do or to be a part of the operation would just be an advantage. Right. I've noticed a lot of companies popping up in the Acadiana area who are taking our homegrown products, rice, sugarcane, et cetera, and using them for new products mostly alcoholic beverages. Uh, do you see that there's a lot of these kinds of ideas of how do I take what we've always done and find new ways and new inspirations to use it differently? Absolutely. And I think it, it, you know, it has to do with the fact that we're operating on such thin margins in farming that we're always looking for ways to diversify our operations. Uh, you know, crawfish is a huge thing in South Louisiana. That's just another way that we diversify. Uh, we're not able to grow many other crops like they do uh, north of us. Corn, soybeans, wheat, milo. Uh, they grow so many different crops. But here in Louisiana, because of our climate, uh, it just doesn't allow for us to, to be very successful in doing that. Sugarcane works. Crawfish work. Rice works. So any way we could diversify our operation um, it is a big deal, whether it's 
like you said, taking a locally grown product and making an alcoholic beverage, whether it's taking your own rice and putting it in your own package. Uh, more and more people are just trying to find ways to diversify. Right. Um, you know, you brought up crawfish and there's a lot of people who watch and listen across the country who are not familiar with our ways um, and they're missing a good thing. Explain, because I did not know this until I was an adult and I think it's fascinating. Explain how you take the same field and part of the year grow rice on it and part of the year raise crawfish on it. That's just fascinating to me. <clears throat> it, it It is. And, um, you know, that's another part of educating the consumer that I really enjoy. Um, so we grow a rice crop. We'll typically plant in early March. Um, we'll grow this out and harvest in, say, late July, early August. Uh, we'll leave these fields idle for about two months. And the end of September, first part of October, we'll start pumping water on the field for the crawfish. Um, most of the time, we don't start catching crawfish till January, but um, there are some people, particularly south of I-10, that'll start in November uh, and run a little bit November, December, but things really kick off as the springtime comes in, in the February, March, April. Uh, that's really when we're most productive uh, with the crawfish. Well, that works out nicely because most people around here observe the Lenten practice of only eating seafood or not eating red meat, at least on Fridays. And so crawfish becomes quite uh, the lovely uh, replacement for any meat that they're not eating due to Lenten constrictions. Um, you know, to me, when I think about noble professions, uh, you know, I think about armed services, I think about first responders and I think about farmers. I mean, it's about as Americana as you can get. And, and I'll go all the way back to when I was in high school and Willie Nelson was doing Farm Aid and John Cougar Mellencamp was singing about the plight of the farmer. And we're 40 years, which I'm going to adjust to that being 40 years ago. We're 40 years farther in now. Is it getting better or is the the, the small local farmer having an easier or harder time competing against the bigger companies who seem to be kind of taking over. It sounded like. We don't necessarily have that, that issue in rice. Um, we still have a lot of mom and pop operations, small farm. I mean, we're getting bigger, uh, even ourselves, you know, on our, on our operation, we, we continue to grow. Um, so we are growing more acres. Uh, per farmer, but it still is in South Louisiana, uh, mostly local people growing local products. That's amazing. Um, have you ever thought about farming anything else? Yeah, again, we're, we're always looking for ways to diversify. We're just, it's a really big challenge in South Louisiana with the amount of rainfall we get, the humidity, the hurricanes, just our climate is it's very difficult for us to grow other crops right. uh, but we're always looking we're always open to discuss anything um, the number one goal for us is to be economically sustainable so anything we can do to do that uh, we try our best to do that's awesome um, you know I know that for most people uh, 2020 was was really impactful to their businesses. And uh, 
not being able to have people come in to their locations, having a transition, uh, other than the times when, you know, you couldn't get in touch with Pennington because they were going through all their challenges. Um, how much did it affect the farming community? Were people eating more rice, less rice? Was that a big impact on y'all at all? Um, we, we actually, the consumption of rice, you know, when the pandemic first started, went up exponentially. You know, you can remember seeing uh, pictures on the local news channels of grocery store shelves being empty. Right. Uh, everybody um, just went in and bought up everything they possibly could. Um, so it really did not hit us hard during 2020. Actually, middle to latter part of 21 has been much more difficult for us than 2020 was. We're having a very difficult time getting products, and, and that's products to keep our equipment running. Um, that's anything that, that we rely on every day is getting harder and harder to get. Um, the, the scary thing is it looks like it could continue into 2022. Uh, it's going to be very challenging for us going into next year um, if we can't get these products like fertilizer. Or, or herbicides to control the weeds in our rice crops. Um, so it's something that, that we worry about on a daily basis. Um, hopefully our supply chain will maybe somewhat get back to normal before we plant in the spring. Right. Uh, but it just it's going to be really difficult for it to turn back to 100% by then. Right. No, that's, that's awful. Um, and I can only imagine the impacts that trickle down is going to continue to have, um, because if you don't have the materials you need to grow what you need, then the store shelves don't get filled up again. Um, I wonder if so many people buying rice, especially was the comfort food of it. You know, it, it's filling, it's, it's warm. It makes you feel like home and a home cooked meal. Um, so yeah, I could see why people bought so much rice last year. They needed that hey. sense of comfort. And rice goes a long ways. Sure. You know, it's it's one of the only foods that you, when you cook it, it expands. Right. Most of, of what you cook uh, shrinks when you, when you cook it. Uh, you take one cup of dry rice and cook it, it's gonna, going to turn into two cups of, or, or two and a half cups of cooked rice. Uh, so it goes a long ways. And I think that's why a lot of people relied on, relied on rice, not knowing what was going to happen during the pandemic, how long we were going to be uh, stuck at home or shut out from the world, um, they, they turned to rice to make sure they had enough food just in case. Right. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense for sure. Um, we have reached the lightning round portion of our podcast, uh, which is my favorite part. And, you know, lightning, you don't have to be fast. I just, it's a, it's a one word, or word answer or phrase. What is your favorite place on earth? Before. Of course. Um, what's a movie you can't turn off? Uh, Lawson Dove. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what TV show do you like to binge watch? Yellowstone. Okay. Seriously, I just got into it this year because Slade dressed as Rip for Halloween and he looks just <laughs> like him. So I was like, all right, fine, I'll watch it. And now in two weeks, I had to binge the whole thing to catch up. It is an amazing show. It is. 
I we uh, we did the same thing. We got turned on to it in the during the pandemic, middle right. of 2020. So we had to catch up really fast. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> it's just it's a good show. I think about you actually watching it now. I see some similarities, but maybe not in some of their extracurricular activities. And I would hope you've never had not. to defend your farm <laughs> the same way they have to defend their land. But um, but that that being of the earth, uh, being incredibly connected to nature, that to me is a strong similarity in a good way. And, and you know, it does have some similarities to, to agriculture because we are losing land every day to uh growing cities. Um, so we are producing more food on less land. So we don't defend it in the same way they do, but it is, um, it is a battle in, in some places. Here we are sitting in Lafayette and you know, Lafayette has grown exponentially in the Youngsville, Broussard area. Uh, and a lot of that used to be sugarcane. Right. Uh, so we do have some of the same similarities. Um, they just put it in a little different, different way. Well, I just think their stories may be a little more dramatic than yours, but yes, I think yeah, the, right. the root of it is the same. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite book? <laughs> I don't read very much. That's all right. Oh, <laughs> uh, I forgot the name of it. Uh, one of our rice economists wrote a book. Um, the grains of the world. I think the name of it was, and it really interested me because he talked about uh, long-term effects and the things that were really going to change agriculture, like water. Uh, and and it was it was very interesting. That's fascinating. Um, it's fascinating to me that somebody wrote an entire book on rice. I just love that. Um, how about podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts when you're out in the field working, or do you listen to music? I listen to music. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite? car or automobile gmc okay Drop. all right favorite festival and i feel like i know the answer to this but i'm gonna let you say it um i have to say the rice festival i was thinking you would say the rice festival <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean you could have gone with crawfish festival but rice festival felt more right um right what is your pettiest pet peeve people not working mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. favorite Part of the music? issues that we're dealing with today is because people are not working. No, oh, I'm sure. I am sure. And especially working in um, fields that are hard, you know, physical labor, challenging actual work. Uh, it's easy to sit at a desk in front of a computer. That's an easy job. Your job is a hard job. Uh, how about your favorite musician? Uh, George Strait. Okay. Um, now, are you a karaoke guy? Do I imagine Michael Frugier ever gets up on stage and does karaoke? No, not so much. No, negative. Favorite sport to watch? College football or college baseball. Sure. Go Cajuns? Yeah, I mean, I pull for all the state okay. schools. All right. I'm, I'm, I went to LSU, so. You go Tigers, I get LSU. it. All right. Yeah. I'm just saying this year you may you may want to wear more red absolutely, than purple. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. Um, again, I feel like I know the answer to this one, but your favorite meal or food? Russian gravy. Yeah. Of yeah. any sort. Uh, what's your favorite way to treat yourself? Hunting. All right. And what hunting season are we in right now? Uh, just about all of them. Okay. Up season, deer season. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. Um, what's the question that I should have asked but didn't? Hmm. You could say I was thorough. That's why, all right. I'll take it. Why do we? Uh, why do we do what we do? Why do you do what you do? It's just a passion to produce food for other people, knowing that we're feeding families, feeding kids, uh, feeding the world. I couldn't have said it better myself. Michael Fruget, thank you for your time. Thank you for your effort. Thank you for your harvest. Thank you for putting food on our tables and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you and thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And for everybody watching and listening, thank you all very much. And I hope you have a happy holiday as well. Thank you.